Hebrews chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Otherwise, you can just listen. Hebrews chapter 3, as we continue our study through uh, of the book of Hebrews. I want to say one more last preliminary word. This is the last preliminary word. But it has to do with the message this morning. Hebrews 3 is a warning. It's a warning. And for us to hear the warning, I think we have to have our, our orientation straight. <coughs> when we come together on Sunday morning, this isn't church, this is an expression of the church. We are the church. Wherever we go, that is the church. This is an expression of the church. And the reason why we come together is to sing what is true and proclaim what is true. I believe that when you get believers together who have got a passion for Jesus Christ and have a faith in Jesus Christ and know what it is to walk with God and the Spirit of God shows up, there is tremendous joy, there's tremendous healing power, there's tremendous excitement. But our purpose for getting together is not to have excitement. That's a byproduct of why we get together. The reason we get together is just to celebrate Jesus Christ, to sing truth about Jesus Christ. That's what worship is. You're giving the worth to God. You're saying what is true about God. You are exalted, Lord, above all else. That's a true thing. We say it out loud. That's why we do it. If you get happy about that, great. If you feel excitement about that, great. If you feel blah and depressed, great too. You still say it because it is true regardless of what you feel like. So also with the proclaiming of the word. The byproduct of the thing is the excitement. It's the joy. It's the healing. But if we start thinking that that is the reason why we get together, things get jaded. Things get skewed. We're here to proclaim the word of God that is true. And here's why this, this distinction is so important. If you begin to think that the reason for getting together is to have some excitement, to have joy, instead of seeing that as the byproduct, you begin to preach towards the joy or begin to preach towards the excitement. In other words, you begin to think that it's your job to make things exciting. It's your job to, to, to get the energy going. And it's not. That's a byproduct. What happens, and it's happened a number of times in different congregations, is that the preacher begins to get nervous, you know, that you've got to just say things that are going to make people happy and going to get them excited. You get addicted to the excitement instead of being addicted to Jesus. And what can happen is you start to preach the word of God selectively, and you start missing the points that maybe the sheep need to hear, but maybe it's not that exciting of stuff to hear. We're dealing with warnings here. Warnings rarely excite people. Woo! We're being warned! You know, it's... It, but it's still part of the good news, even though it's not what we in the natural want to hear. This is part of the good news. Look at If we're sitting at home and, and the tornado warning goes off, you know, that's, it, what's good news is that the tornado hasn't hit yet and the warning went off before the tornado came. That's good news. The good news is I've got time to get down to my, ba my, my basement. But it's not what I want to hear. I'd rather not hear a warning, frankly. But it's good news that we have it. So it is with the Word of God. There are places where it gives us a warning, a serious warning. It may not be the kind of stuff that makes you want to run the aisles, but it's stuff that we've got to hear and chew on if we're going to grow, if we're going to be the kind of people that God wants us to be. They're there for a reason. This is why I really believe the way to preach the Word of God is to start with verse 1 and just keep on plowing forward, because that way, whether you want to preach it or not, you've got to preach it. It's your commitment. And so we're going to be talking about the warning here this morning, now that you're ready to run the aisles. Hebrews chapter 3, I'll start with verse 7. The author here is, as you know, for those of you who have been uh, here in the last several weeks, 
The author is warning the Hebrew Christians about backsliding, about going back to their pre-Christian days. And he says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, this is what, the, what God says, Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, if God's pulling you, if God's prompting you, if God's moving you, do not harden your hearts like the children of Israel did in the days of rebellion. It's possible to hear God's voice, to feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and to plant your heels down and say, no, I don't want to do it. It's possible. He's writing to believers here. It's possible as a believer to harden your heart against the moving of the Holy Spirit. Don't do it like the Israelites did in the day of testing in the wilderness. Where your ancestors put me, the Lord says to the test, though they'd seen my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. And so in my anger I made an oath, they will not enter my rest. They are not going to enter into the land of, into the land of Canaan, because they've been rebellious, they've hardened their hearts against me. Take care, and now the author applies what happened to Israel to the believers here in the book of Hebrews. Take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you may have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, so long as it is called today. That is to say, while there's still time to repent, repent. While there's still time to change, change. Before the kingdom comes, do it now, while there still is time, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look at that word deceitfulness there. For believers, it usually isn't the case that you make a conscious decision to be lukewarm or mediocre or backslidden. It happens by increments. It happens slowly. It's deceptive. And that's why the author says here we need to be in relationship with one another. We need to exhort one another. We need to hold one another accountable. To say things like, what happened to that passion that you had a year ago? I don't quite see that anymore. And you do it out of love. You don't do it to condemn. But we need one another to keep check with one another. Because sin is very deceptive. It gets in there. And it gradually pollutes and erodes the heart of the believer. Verse 14. For we have become partners of Christ, if only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Same verse again. The warning is awesome. Don't harden yourself. Verse 16. Now who were they who heard and yet were rebellious? Who am I talking about in other words? He says, was it not all those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? What he's saying there is this. The very ones who were prevented from getting into the land of Canaan were the ones who were called out of Egypt in order to get into the land of Canaan. They were supposed to enter in. God wanted them to enter in. But the very ones who you think would be most on fire, most sold out to the Lord, ended up hardening their hearts. The very ones whom God brought out of Egypt, brought through the Red Sea, were the ones who hardened their hearts against the Lord and didn't enter into the land of Canaan. That whole generation lost it. But with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest, if not to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. The children of Israel, called of God, children of God, did not enter into the provision that God had for them because of their unbelief, their hardness of heart. And now the author wants to say to the Hebrew Christians, and he's saying it here to us this morning, warning, warning, this could happen to you. It's a heavy message. We need to hear it. Let's pray. Father, let your word just land on us as it's supposed to land on us. Lord, we want the entire diet of your word. 
the vegetables, the meat, the potatoes, and the dessert. But we don't want to be addicted to the dessert, Lord. We want the whole meal. So, Lord, feed us here this morning. Your spirit is the one who has the responsibility for feeding us. Use the words that are said here, Lord God. Let your spirit fall. Bless us. Convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need uh, encouragement. Father, I come against the enemy right now in Jesus' name who tries to distort truth every, at every opportunity. That what is said here would be heard in the spirit that it's intended to be said and intended to be heard. And that there would be no condemnation, even where there is conviction. And be glorified in all of this, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. The issue here is this. What do believers need to be warned about? How does this passage apply to us? There are three areas, I believe, where, that we could discuss uh, about where we need to be warned. I'm going to talk about two of them. The three are this. There are warnings in the Bible about believers losing their salvation. And that raises this big, big theological issue about can believers lose their salvation and things of that sort. We'll get to that when we talk about Hebrews 6. Okay, so stick around for probably a couple of years and we'll get to Hebrews 6. And but the other two I want to talk about this morning. What implications does this have, this warning have for our earthly blessing and what implications does it have for our eternal blessing? First, this warning I believe has implications to believers about their earthly blessing. The children of Israel were called, as I said, out of Egypt. They were called to enter into the land of Canaan. God wanted to bless them in such rich ways. They saw a lot of miracles. They saw God do a lot of things. But God wanted them beyond that, not to settle for that, but beyond that to move out of the desert and move into the land that was flowing with milk and honey, which is sort of an allegory for the land of promise, the land of blessing, the land of abundance that God had for, these, for the children of Israel. God wanted to do great exploits through them. God wanted to show off his mighty power in the face of all the giants that they faced in the land of Canaan. God wanted just to pour out the riches of his glory and blessing on these children. That's why he brought them out of Egypt. That's why he brought them through the Red Sea. That's why he rained on them manna from heaven. And yet the reality of the situation, the tragedy of the situation is this. Though God wanted to do that, they hardened their hearts and didn't receive it. They got out of Egypt all right. But they didn't enter into the land of promise. In fact, all of them died in the wilderness. Their lives, in the end, save two. Two of them entered in the land of promise. All the rest of the children of Israel died in the desert. Instead of being used by God to further God's strategy and plan for world history, the whole thing got delayed for 40 more years. As, as these people died in the wilderness, their lives largely counted as waste. Here's the warning that the author wants us to see. It is possible to get out of Egypt and not get into Canaan. That is to say this, it's possible to be a saved Christian and yet to not be used of God in building his kingdom and never see the glory of God displayed in your life because you don't have the passion, you don't have the courage, you don't have the fearlessness, you don't have the abandon that it takes for God to move through you in that way. You see... God saves us not just as fire insurance. A lot of Western Christians think that salvation is fire insurance. That's the main thing. I get out of hell. That's like a criminal thinking that the main thing is getting out of jail. But you see, the main thing is what got them into jail. And that is their character and their behavior that got them into jail. That's the problem. Jail is just the consequence of what's really the problem in their life. But if they don't see that, then they think that the problem is jail. So also, believers think that salvation is, is salvation from hell. And thank God you're saved from hell. Praise God about that. 
But that's a footnote. What God wants to save us from is everything that would ever lead us to hell. In other words, here's what salvation is. It's reconciliation with God. It's right relationship with God. God isn't primarily interested in giving us fire insurance. That is the most minimal definition of salvation there is. What God wants is to come against in our life everything that would ever possibly send us there. To come against everything that would ever separate us from God. He wants to free us from the sin that leads to hell. He wants to free us from all forms of bondage. He wants to free us from the things that separate us from himself. He wants to free us from the things that separate us from walking in the full joy that he purchased for us on Calvary. Amen? He wants to free us from the separation, everything that separates, separates us from moving into the full power and the victory that he purchased for us on Calvary. He has purchased for us Canaan on Calvary. That's the whole story of salvation. And he wants us, he's bought for us, he's purchased for us, and he's sent it forth in the power of the Spirit, the possibility of walking in the victory of the Holy Spirit as more than conquers, with a joy unspeakable and full of glory, with a peace that passes understanding, with a victory in the character of God in your life. That's what God wants us to be walking in. That's what salvation is all about. Amen. And to reduce it down to fire insurance is to miss the good stuff. But here's the warning. It's possible to sell out, to reduce salvation down to a little bit of fire insurance. It's possible to have the character of God, the life of God, the Holy Spirit in your life, and all that Jesus Christ purchased for us. Here's the warning. And not walk in it, but rather to resist it. Because you're so used to walking in terms of your old self. You're so used to thinking in terms of your old self. You never move into the good stuff. You never taste the milk. You never taste the honey. You're out of Egypt for sure, but you never move into the good stuff that Jesus died to have us move into. And the reason is because the faith isn't there. There's not the abandonment. Perpetually immature believers, the church in the West is full of them, chronically addicted to immaturity, dealing with the same issues at the age of 40 as you dealt with when you were 20, and you deal with them also when you're 60, going around and around and around the desert, always going around the same issues, committing the same mistakes, never growing up, never being used of God to come against the kingdom of darkness, never being used of God to build the kingdom of God, because you're always in a state of perpetual immaturity, and you wonder where God is, you wonder where the power is, you wonder why other people have this victory, but all the while it's because you're hanging on to your desert mentality. Not wanting to let go, not wanting to surrender, holding on to the lordship of your own, own life. Always just sort of on the fence with sin, kind of doing the balance beam act, you, you know, just kind of flirting with it, flirting with the world all of your life. Instead of moving into the, the joy and the peace and the power and the victory that is ours because of Calvary. But it takes saying yes to it, not just verbally, saying yes to it in your heart, being sold out, being surrendered. So many believers miss out of the glory of the milk and honey land because they're addicted to a desert mentality. They, they're addicted to their comfort. They're addicted to convenience. They're addicted to safety. They're addicted to just doing things their own way. They're addicted to their, their, their life of, of pleasure, perhaps, or whatever. And they miss out of the Canaan experience. And the warning to us is this. The warning is this. Don't do that. It's that simple. Sell out. Abandon ship. Let God fight the battles. Have a faith. Exercise an outrageous faith. Be willing to do the outrageous, to see God do the outrageous through you. And then the flow of the high man, the power starts flowing through you. But it takes that, it takes that abandonment, and the warning is that it's possible to miss that your entire life. You hear about it over there, you hear about it over there, you hear about it over there, but it doesn't happen with you. 
That's, that applies to us individually. It applies to us as a congregation as well. We're in this together, folks. There's no Christian, no Christian is an island. No Christian is an island. We're in this together. We, our strength and our weakness is, is, is a corporate thing as well. And here's the thing. It is possible for a congregation, like the congregation of Israel, to not move into Canaan. In fact, it's possible for a congregation to make significant headway in moving into Canaan. To see the glory of God. They saw it. To see the power of God like they saw. To see miracles like they saw. To have a passion and a fire. And it's possible then to get cold feet and lose it. That's the warning. And we got to hear it. It's possible to see God do a season of victory for four years perhaps and just do incredible things. And yet for then for the leadership or the body of people to just say, you know what, this is nice, this is comfortable, this is, this is, this is good. And then you start strategizing too much, you start doing it in the carnal, you start calculating too much, you start getting overly safe, you start worrying about whether people are going to like what you preach or not. You get addicted to excitement, perhaps. You get off in this direction or off in that direction. You, you, you like the status quo because it's safe. And, and what happens is you lose the power. You lose the edge. You lose the radicality. You lose the passion that, made, that, that allowed God to move in a miraculous way to start with. I pray, God, that we never lose that, that we, that we never get safe conscious, that we never adopt a desert mentality that says this is what's convenient, this is what's safe, this is what's okay, this is what's better than average, and settle for that rather than moving into the land of milk and honey that God wants us to drink from. Amen? Amen. Amen. But it takes faith. Amen. And it takes courage. And it takes a sense of abandonment. And it takes a sense of sold-outness. The warning is it's possible to miss all that. Hear it. Let the Holy Spirit apply as it may. There's a second dimension of warning that we need to hear, I believe, because it's taught in the Word of God. And this dimension is rarely talked about in the church, especially the Protestant church. It's, I think, one of the most neglected teachings of the Scripture, even though the Scripture is per permeated with it. In fact, a lot of you probably have never heard this before, so I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit here to, 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 to let it land in the way that it needs to land for us to hear it. Because this particular teaching, this particular warning is not given to believers very often, you often get believers who abuse grace. And what I mean by abusing grace is this. They say, well, because I'm saved by grace and I'm perfected by grace, you know, in, in God's eyes, therefore, everything I do is sort of secondary or inconsequential. You get this sort of mentality. Since I'm saved by grace, it doesn't really matter how I live. It doesn't really matter what I do. And now, holiness... Separating ourselves from the world, which is a very biblical teaching, becomes a sort of an ornament. It becomes sort of optional. Living for Jesus becomes optional. Everything becomes negotiable. It's sort of secondary. If you get around to it, fine. But if you don't, hey, you know, maybe you'll lose your earthly blessing, but after all, what, you know, we, at least we're, we're going to be in heaven, and, and once you die, everything will just be just as, as though this world had never occurred. And so you get people abusing grace. It is all over the place in American Christianity. Here's the teaching. The warning is this. What you do in this world, even as a believer, can have eternal consequences. Let me first lay out the teaching of Scripture and then give an explanation for it, okay? The Bible talks about several things here. A judgment seat of the believer. The judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and this is found in a lot of different places. Again, this isn't the sort of thing that will make you run the aisle, but it's the kind of thing that will help us to grow into... Discipled believers. Paul says this in verse uh, 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. 
So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim in all things to please Him, to please the Lord. We want to please the Lord. Whatever we do, we want to please the Lord. Verse 10, For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense. Recompense. For what he has done in the body, that is to say an appropriate response for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We have a couple facts here. Number one, there is a judgment seat of Christ. The Bible talks quite a bit about it. Romans chapter 14, verse 10, talking to believers, says we shall appear before the throne of God to receive a reward. But there's, there's a variety there. There's, it's a judgment seat. A second thing is this. Throughout the New Testament, you find the Lord, especially Jesus, talking in his parables about there being lesser and greater levels in heaven. John the Baptist is said to be the least of those who are in the kingdom of heaven. So those who are least shall be first. There's an order in the kingdom of heaven. There's some sort of variety there in the kingdom of heaven. You hear about this a lot in the parables. People who are given various talents. And the question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with the talents that God has given to you? And that determines the reward that you get in the kingdom of God. A third thing, and this is interesting, there's some sort of fire there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, a purging fire. There's some sort of purging that goes on as the very start of the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is, I believe, a dimension of the rest that the author is talking about in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll start with verse 10. And I'm reading out of the NRSV version. Jeez. My goodness. Okay. Slobbering on myself. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. This is Paul talking. And someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on the foundation. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has already been laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, verse 12. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or even straw, the work of each builder will become visible for that day, and the day there is the day of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, will disclose because it will reveal the fire. This is truth here. There's a, the fire of God's truth will examine everything that has been done. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If, verse 14, if what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Isn't that interesting? Okay, what's going on there? That phrase, only as through fire, is a, is a Greek proverb. And a really, a, a, um, uh, a, a comparable expression in, in English would be by the skin of your teeth. Uh, you'll, be, you'll be saved, but only through fire. The, the picture is someone whose house is on fire. They escape through the fire. That's how far gone the house was. They had to run through the fire to get out of the house. The entire house is gone, but they themselves are saved. There's a warning here about believers who will enter the kingdom, and they are kingdom people, but their house is totally destroyed. Let me talk a little bit about what this is about and what this is not about. First of all, what this is not about. In 1 Corinthians 3, this judgment is not about the foundation. The foundation is laid. You get that? It's not about testing the foundation. 
Which is to say, it's not about the believer's salvation. It's not about the believer's standing with God. The foundation is there. It remains untouched by the fire because the foundation is not about us, it's about Jesus Christ. And what that is to say is this. This judgment seat of the believer is not about, it's not about our forgiveness. Who we are before God, who we are as children of God, is a matter completely and unequivocally and 100% of God's grace, and our simply saying, yes, I accept that. You follow me on this? That you are forgiven. It's not something you strive for or earn or anything like that. Forgiveness comes by the grace of God because you put your trust in Calvary. You are washed by the blood of the Lamb by God's grace. Amen? You are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb by God's grace. You are rejuvenated by the blood of the Lamb by God's grace. Simply saying, by faith, I put my trust in the cross. That's what makes you a bride of Christ. That's what makes you holy. That's what makes you spotless. That's what makes you clean. That's what wipes away your sin. That's what casts as far as the east is from the west your sins from you. All of that is there by grace. That's the foundation of your life. That's the foundation of your identity. And it's all there 100% by God's grace. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't achieve it. You can't strive for it. It's not a matter of doing good deeds and, and, and being worthy of it. None of us are worthy about it. We're all sinners that are simply saved by God's grace. Amen? Amen. That has got to be there, solid. Whatever Paul's talking about in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's not talking about the foundation. The foundation comes by God's grace. But the question is this. What do you build on that foundation? What do you build on the foundation? And apparently it's possible to build a house major metropolis, perhaps, out of straw on the foundation of the blood of Jesus Christ. See, the world is full of building materials that do not survive fire. And it's possible for the believer to have a foundation of Jesus Christ, but to buy into the world's material. You can, this culture says, the appropriate house to build. Our lives are being built. We are building a house of our life. The story of your life is the building that you dwell in, okay? That's the analogy here. And it's possible, though you have a foundation of Jesus Christ, you've been brought out of Egypt, you buy into the culture's building material that says the way to build a house is to build a house of success, to build a house of comfort. You build your house out of the straw of materialism. You build your house out of the wood of self-centeredness. You build your house out of materials that are simply geared towards convenience, towards comfort, towards achieving the American dream. You build a house that's based on climbing the ladder of corporate America. You build a house that's all strategized about how can I avoid the most trouble? How can I feel best about myself and whatnot? You build a house based on the kind of car that you drive or the clothes that you wear, the recognition that you get or the fame that you have or the money that you have or the power that you exercise over people. And it's all straw. It's all a waste because you don't take any of it one second beyond the grave. And it does not survive the fire of God's truth. Amen. And the warning we've got to hear is this. The warning is that it's possible to have a heart for God, to be a genuine, regenerate believer, but to, have, but to be living in a house of straw. And in the end, like the children of Israel, your life has not been productive to the kingdom of God. God hasn't used you the way he wanted to use you. You could have been a hero of the faith, doing your little niche in ministry, whatever that might be, but instead you were chasing straw, building a house of straw. And there is a time, and it happens the moment you die, that the fire of God's truth just says, what is durable here? What is durable here? The warning that we've got to receive, especially in this culture, where we are impacted on a moment-by-moment -moment basis with lies about the kind of house we ought to be building, the warning is this. 
Is your life spent building a house that survives eternally? You see, it's not about the foundation. It's about the kind of house you're building on it. Any builder that's a good builder will consider the durability of the material they're building their house with. If you build a house that's cheap, it's going to fall apart in no time at all. Some of you have lived in houses like that. And so it is this. Is the, is the house that you're building with your life made of material that's going to last forever? Because in the end, that's the only thing that matters. And this isn't saying live, live your life you know, pie in the sky, head in the clouds, no earthly good kind of a stuff. What it's saying... We're called to be invested in the world. We've got to have jobs. You've got to you know, be involved in the temporal world and all that kind of stuff. But here's the thing. The question is this. Are you using it to build a ministry? Are you using it to invest in other people? Are you using it to express the character and the love of God to the people around you? Are you using your life, is your heartbeat of your life, to build a house that is based on faith, that's based on what God can do instead of limited by what you cannot do? Or is our life rather spent, the entire life spent, wandering on the de desert, chasing things that don't survive one second past the grave? That's the warning that we've got to look at. And there is a time where the believer stands before the Lord and what is, what is of kingdom value, what, 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 is, what is consistent with foundation. That's what the point is. The foundation is solid. Do you build a solid house off of that foundation or do you build um, with materials that are totally incongruous with that foundation? Straw just is inappropriate if you've got a, a, a foundation made of diamonds. Totally inappropriate. So also, we will go to the judgment throne of Christ. And the question is, Everything that is inappropriate, everything about us that is incongruous with God is exposed and is done away with because it just has no place in the kingdom. And the question is, what is left? What is left? And Paul tells us that as a warning, and the author of Hebrews tells us this as a warning to motivate us to keep our orientation right. What are we living for? What are we living for? What are our goals? What are our aspirations? What kind of house are we building? Now, here's the interesting theological question that I can't really get into too deeply here, but it's this. How does this teaching about the, re the rewards of the believer relate to the teaching that we're saved and perfected by God's grace? How do you put those two together? Very interesting theological question. I'm not sure I have the answer, but let me give it a stab. Here's an analogy. We are called, I believe, most fundamentally to be mirrors of God's glory. We are not ourselves suns. We are the moon, as it were. The moon doesn't have its own light, but it reflects the light of the sun. We are called to be satellites, as it were, of Jesus Christ, mirrors of Jesus Christ that reflect his love and his peace and his power in our own life. Throughout eternity, the Bible says in Ephesians 1, we will be trophies of God's grace. We mirror God's grace back to him. And that's the, that's the beauty of the kingdom. In a, in, a, in a certain kind of way, the glory is expanded because now there's more mirrors reflecting it. Every believer, I believe, in eternity will be a mirror filled with God's light. And we participate in that light. We participate. We're worn by the sun that we reflect. That's our joy throughout eternity is, 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 is moving in the love of God. Every mirror, I believe, in eternity will have everything that, that would possibly stain its ability to reflect washed away so that you will be a spotless mirror. And you will be filled with God's light. You will be happy. In heaven, everyone will be happy. I don't think there will be anyone that will be saying, oh, gosh, I envy that person or I miss that person. But, as I'm reading the scripture here, the capacity of a mirror to reflect light, in terms of how much light it can re reflect, is influenced by how much we yield to the work of God here in this life. 
Even now in this congregation, we can be filled with the love of God, and yet some people, because of their life, because of decisions they've made, because they're sold out, have a deeper capacity to experience that love than others. They'll all feel, feel equally filled. So also in eternity, perhaps we can think of it like this. There's different sizes of mirrors. All the mirrors are full. They experience fullness. But some reflect more light. That's the reward for having sold out. However you understand it, we just got to hear the teaching. The teaching is this. There's a warning. It's possible to miss out on reward. It's possible to miss out on earthly blessing. How? By hardening to the voice of God that moves in our life. God is calling us. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And they follow me. The question is, are you following him? As he leads, what's your life about? What are your priorities? What are your values? What occupies your mind all the time? What is the life mission of your life? And I would encourage you to hear the author of Hebrews here this morning just saying this. Make it Jesus Christ. Sell out. Abandon ship. Surrender the reins completely over to him. Don't hold back anything because the joy and all the goods of the Christian life come by being yielded. A part of the flesh resists that. But boy, the payoff when you yield is so great and so marvelous. Hear the warning.